Thank you very much, Cormac. My name is Scott Grant. You may not have seen me around for a couple months because I've been on sabbatical. I uh, took some time off for two months with um, a little bit with my wife, a little bit with my family, a little bit by myself, a lot of time with the Lord. I, I did a little bit of everything. I studied uh, a few passages. I prayed a lot. I reflected. I played a little golf. I did a little fishing. Uh, I did just about a little bit of everything, but now I am tanned toned, rested, and I'm back. And I can see a few faces out there that I don't recognize that you maybe have come in the last couple of months, so it's good to see you. And who is this Cormac guy, anyway? This, uh, yeah, this, uh, we got a new worship pastor. I mean, this is awesome. And if you haven't met the worship pastor's wife, Jasmine, she is awesome. I wouldn't even say she's a little more awesome than Carmack. Uh, I got to know both of them before I left. And, I, you know, my stamp of approval, you know, and so party stamp of approval, I should say. It's great to have both of you with us. It's really just it's awesome to worship with you, too, Cormac. I really enjoyed that this morning. Uh, so I hear you're in the book of Exodus. Is that right? The book of Exodus, right? Okay, so I guess I better come up with something this morning. <laughs> so Exodus is a, is a personally meaningful book to me. Um, it's, uh, I identify with Moses. Uh, first of all, Moses grew up in Egypt. He went away to the wilderness for 40 years, and then he came back. I grew up on the peninsula. I went away for not 40 years, but sometime I lived in many different places, and some of those places might even qualify as the wilderness, and then I came back. And then uh, Moses uh, has to confront his fears. And when I first studied the book of Exodus, I identified with Moses in my own fears. And so Moses helped me confront my fears, and he's still helping me to do that. And then also, the book of Exodus was the first book I ever taught here at PBC in its entirety. So some of you who were part of the Young Adults Fellowship, and I think there are still a few around in 1996-97 might remember the first book I taught when we started the Young Adults Fellowship was the book of Exodus. It took us a couple years to get through it. So uh, I'm coming full circle in the book of Exodus, and I'm excited to do so. And I'm excited to be back with you. Christian Wyman is a poet, and... Um, he dealt with a very extreme form of cancer in his 30s that was very fast-growing and very difficult to treat. And he writes this. I have been in and out of treatment, in and out of the hospital. I have had bones die and bowels fail, joints lock in my face and arms and legs so that I could not eat, could not walk. I have filled my body with mingled mouse and human antibodies, cutting-edge small molecules, old school chemotherapies eating into me like animate acids. I have passed through pain I could never have imagined, pain that seemed to incinerate all my thoughts of God and to leave me sitting there in ashes alone. He had to deal with pain that incinerated all his thoughts of God. And difficult circumstances can do that, can't they? You're dealing with difficult circumstances and you believe in God, but then these difficult circumstances come and sometimes it seems like 
the circumstances incinerate your thoughts about God. So here we are in Exodus chapter 5, and uh, things are pretty bad in Egypt for the people of God, but things go from bad to worse. In Exodus 5, things go from bad to worse, and sometimes that happens in our lives, right? You think things are pretty bad. You think they can't get worse. They go from bad to worse. So this is in contrast to what we saw last week at the end of Exodus chapter 4. So a little background, you, you know, you know the story, most of you anyway, but you got, you got Moses who grew up in Egypt. He goes off to the wilderness. He failed back in Egypt, and he spends 40 years in the wilderness. The Lord meets him in the wilderness, in the burning bush, and says, go back to Egypt. I want you to deliver the people of God. I want you to deliver my people, the Israelites, from bondage in Egypt. And so Moses is reluctant, but eventually he goes back, and he goes back, and his brother Aaron goes out to meet him, and, and Moses and Aaron come to the elders of Israel and the people of Israel, and uh, Aaron speaks, and the people believe. Not only do the people believe, but they worship. So they've been in bondage for 400 years, and now they are, they, they, they hear this word of deliverance, and there's an excitement. Things are looking up. And then we find out they're not in Exodus chapter 5. So let's look at it, Exodus chapter 5, first of all, the first nine verses. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore, they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no attention to lying words. Okay, so things are looking up, right? Moses and Aaron, probably high off their encounter with the people, come now to Pharaoh and they approach Pharaoh and request that he let the people go. And Pharaoh predictably rejects them, dismisses them out of hand. And he says to them, who is the Lord that I should let the people go? The Lord, Yahweh, the, the God of Israel, the God of these people. Who, who is he? I don't, I don't know him. Well, Pharaoh's going to find out soon enough who the Lord is as the Lord executes his wonders in Egypt. But for now, he says, who is the Lord? And it doesn't, it doesn't even matter to him who the Lord is. Even if the Lord exists in his mind, it doesn't matter. That, that God is irrelevant. That's the God of the Hebrews. And we have our own gods here in Egypt. And by the way, our gods are more powerful than your gods because we have you under our thumb. And not only that, 
you know what? I'm a God. In, in this whole Egyptian worldview, I'm a God. So who's the Lord? I don't care. I don't care who the Lord is. So of course he dismisses their request out of hand. So Moses and Aaron then take a different approach. Well, they try again. They use some different words, but that doesn't work either. Pharaoh, of course, doesn't care. He's not gonna let the people go. He is a tyrant and tyrants care about only one thing, power, getting more power and holding on to the power that they have. Forget it, get out of here. In fact, I'm gonna make your life more difficult. You think I'm gonna let you go? No, I'm not gonna let you go. I'm gonna make your life actually more difficult. And he accuses Moses and Aaron of filling the heads of the people with a lot of starry-eyed ideas and distracting them from their work. They are his slaves and they're supposed to work for him. And if they start thinking, having these dreams, entertaining these dreams of deliverance, they're gonna be distracted from their work. So no, get back to your work. Not only get back to your work, but I'm gonna make things harder for you. So, you, so you'll forget all about this deliverance nonsense. So what he does is he orders them uh, to continue the, doing the same amount of work, but now uh, the, regarding the straw, they're gonna have to gather their own straw. Now straw was necessary for bricks to hold their shape, to make them, otherwise that they would fall apart. And now they have to gather their own straw, but still make the same quota, still deliver the same number of bricks. It's an impossible demand. And Pharaoh hopes then that, they, that they'll, they'll be, get rid of this whole idea of deliverance because life is actually getting more difficult. And he accuses them of being idle or lazy. He, he, he says he sees right through this ploy. Really, you're just trying to get out of work, aren't you? Well, let me tell you about work. I'm gonna make it more difficult for you. I'm gonna lay a heavier burden on you so that you will forget about what he calls lying words or false words. These words of deliverance that Moses and Aaron are speaking of, about getting out of Egypt, from Pharaoh's perspective, they are deceitful words, they are lying words, they are false words. And if he makes things more difficult for them, then the people will, will realize he hopes that these are just false words. So we have the word of God, and some of the word of God concerns deliverance, God promises to deliver us from evil. In fact, we pray in the Lord's prayer, deliver us from evil. And we know based on other scriptures that that prayer will be answered. Do you realize that? When we pray that prayer, deliver us from evil, we pray with confidence that the Lord is going to answer that prayer. So God is going to deliver us from evil. So what is bothering you right now? What is oppressing you right now? Well, whatever it is, if you believe in Jesus Christ, you can have confidence that God is going to deliver you from that one day. Not only that, if I read my scriptures correctly, God is in the process even now of doing so. Do you realize that? Do you realize whatever it is that's bothering you now, whatever oppression you're dealing with, God is even now in the process of delivering you from that, moving things into place, moving people into place, moving players into place. He's doing the same thing with the entire world. 
for all believers in Jesus Christ, moving everything into place so that he will once and for all deliver us from evil and such things are happening even now. Do you realize that? That should give you hope right now. Whatever you're going through right now, it should give you hope. God is in the process of delivering you and in fact, delivering the whole world, amen. But what does Pharaoh say? Pay no regard to lying words. Have you ever felt as if these are false words? That maybe that doesn't kind of match up with reality. It doesn't kind of match up with my current experience. Well, there's an evil one out there who wants you to believe exactly that. Who wants you to believe that this is all a bunch of nonsense. And there are forces at play in our world that want you to believe that this is all a bunch of nonsense. You're wasting time here. You're paying attention. You're giving regard to lying words. The promises of deliverance from evil, lying, deceitful, false words. Now, difficult circumstances can make it seem as if God's promises concerning deliverance are invalid, right? Sometimes we have to wrestle through these things. Life in the Silicon Valley sometimes can make you feel as if the word of God, the promises of God, the promises of deliverance are invalid. Life, the workplace here, sometimes, because of the burdens placed on you, because of the challenges here, can sometimes make you feel that the promises of God, the word of God, the promises of God concerning deliverance are invalid. So we have to deal with these kinds of things, don't we? Difficult circumstances can incinerate thoughts about God as they did for the poet Christian Wyman. But let me ask you a question. Do difficult circumstances make the promises of God concerning deliverance any less true? Let me ask the question again, and you get to answer the question. Do difficult circumstances make the promises of God concerning deliverance any less true? And the church answers, no. No. The word of God is true. Let everything else be false. This is true. What did we just sing? Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness, your faithfulness. One of the things I did on sabbatical is I went to different churches, most of them in the area here, and I went mostly to smaller churches, and I was very encouraged, by the way. Great pastors, great churches, great sermons. Uh, it was great to worship with other folks, and so you should be encouraged, too. We're not alone here uh, on the peninsula and in the South Bay. But uh, one of the things I really wanted to do is I wanted to go back to the church where I came to Christ in Los Altos. It's the Union Presbyterian Church of Los Altos. And uh, I grew up here in Mountain View, and some friends invited me to this youth group at this church 49 years ago, right about this time, 1973. For, so 49 years ago, 
I, I, I go to this church. I'm, I'm driving with these guys. I've told this story before, but for this story to make sense, I got to tell it again. And um, so this is the church that I decided to worship again at 49 years later. But 49 years ago, I walked to the, walk into this room with these guys who took me to this youth group. And we go into Landel's room. I remember the room. And we sat down, about 30 of us, kids cross-legged on the floor. The youth pastor was sitting in front of, front of us, also cross-legged on the floor. He's got a Bible in his hand, and he says, open to Ephesians. And I thought to myself, what? <laughs> Ephesians? I didn't know what Ephesians was. And I saw other kids with Bibles, and they seemed to be you know, fumbling around. Oh, Ephesians must be in the Bible. And they, I knew there was an Old Testament and a New Testament. This was kind of toward the back. Oh, this must be in the New, must be in the New Testament. And there was this girl sitting cross-legged on the floor next to me, and she noted, noted my plight. I didn't have a Bible. I didn't know what was going on. She takes a Bible. She opens up to Ephesians, and she hands me a Bible, and then we study the book of Ephesians. And that was my introduction to the Word of God. That was the first Bible study I ever attended. That was my introduction to Jesus. And about three months later, I came to Christ. The name of the youth pastor, by the way, I've mentioned his name before, was Conrad Hopkins. He grew up here at Peninsula Bible Church, and his father was an elder here way back in the 1950s. So he just did a verse-by-verse Bible study of Ephesians. So I go back to this church 49 years later, and I, just, I worship with these people, and there's only one person left from my days in the youth group there, a woman by the name of Carol. And she was there on this particular Sunday. And so afterwards, she gave me a tour of the church along with her husband, Mario, and we walked into Landel's room again, and this felt, this felt like a holy place to me. So I'm walking into Landel's room, and I'm standing there in Landel's room where I went, attended my first Bible study 49 years ago, and I could picture the scene. I could picture Conrad saying, open to Ephesians. I could picture all these other kids around me also opening to Ephesians. I could picture the girl next to me reaching over to me and handing me a Bible and opening to Ephesians. But I didn't have to imagine what she looked like today because she was standing right next to me. It was Carol. It was Carol who handed me that Bible 49 years ago. She's still there, faithfully worshiping the Lord, gave me the tour. We walked into Landel's room together and there she was. Your promise still stands. Great is your faithfulness, oh God. Your faithfulness. He is working, even now, to bring about our deliverance in unseen ways, in ways that we can't see, in ways that we have no way of knowing, What's happening now? But rest assured and trust in God, he's working even now. What do we sing? Even though I don't see it, you're working. So if the evil one comes to us and the world comes to us and all these forces come to us and say, pay no attention to lying words, what do we do? We do the opposite. We get into the word. We absorb the word. Absorb the word. Get it into your system. This is true. Let everything else be false. This is true. 
Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of God our Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. He also says this in 2 Corinthians 1.10. He, that being God, delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So when someone comes to me with a troublesome issue, and I don't know the person really well, and I don't know the issue really well, what I try to do for the first 30 minutes or so, or maybe longer, or maybe less, is I try just to listen. And I ask questions, and I'm trying to understand what the story is. But as I'm listening, I'm trying also to listen to the Spirit to try to understand what from the Scriptures can help this individual today. And usually by the end of our time together, I've got some Scriptures for them to think about. And I take a three-by-five card, and I write down the references, and I said, here, take this. Read through these verses multiple times. Pray through these verses. Meditate on these verses. This is true. What you're going through right now might make you think that this stuff isn't true, but this is true. The Spirit will help you assimilate these words into your life. Get them into your system. The Spirit breathes out these words. The Spirit is with the word. And then the Spirit helps us to assimilate the word. Back to the book of Exodus. So the people of Israel are unable to meet the new, to, to, to meet the quota and with their additional burdens. And the foremen of Israel pay the price. Look at verse 14, chapter 5, verse 14. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you done? All your task of making bricks, to, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? So, what happens? The foremen get beaten up. They get beaten and they get berated because the people aren't doing what Pharaoh expects them to do. So, remember Exodus 4, things were looking up. Now things fall apart. Sometimes, just when it seems as if things are looking up, they fall apart. So the foremen go in, of Israel, the foremen go in and they complain to Pharaoh. Pharaoh kicks him out. Of course, I'm not going to do anything about this. He's really happy with what's going on here. The people, the people are probably forgetting all about this deliverance nonsense. Things are harder. And so then the foremen come out and they encounter Moses and Aaron. And we see this in verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made a stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So the foreman, they find someone to blame. They find two people to blame. Moses and Aaron. If you had never approached Pharaoh in the first place, Pharaoh wouldn't have cracked down on us. It is your fault. 
We lay the blame at your feet. You led us into this. You deceived us, filling us with all these ideas of deliverance. And where's the deliverance? Things are actually getting harder. They blame Moses and Aaron. It is a common human response to human problems, is it not, to find someone to blame. It's really uncanny, I find, in my own experience, when something's wrong, there is this initial thing. Okay, who's to blame for this? <laughs> who's, whose fault is this? And, and, and usually the first response is, well, it can't be my fault. <laughs> it's somebody else's fault. And uh, so that's a common human response. Now, there are some politicians in our world who make a living doing this. They tell you who to blame. It's the fault of the Republicans. It's the fault of the Democrats. It's the fault of the immigrants. It's the fault of the elites. You've got to find somebody to blame and vote for me, by the way, because it's not your fault and I'm going to fix it. C.S. Lewis wrote this very interesting sort of science fiction novel called The Great Divorce. And in it, there's this fanciful depiction of hell. It's not based on the Bible, but it's based on his imagination. But I think it speaks a truth. He's taking the Bible and then speaking a truth based on it and concocting this other world. So in the great divorce in hell, if you're in hell, you can live anywhere you want. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Think about that. Here I am. I can live anywhere I want. Doesn't cost you anything either. Costs you a lot to live here. I want to live in the peninsula. Yeah, well, you've got to pay... $4 million for a house. No, I don't want to live there. Oh, I got to live. Ah, you know. But you can live anywhere you want. The problem is people learn pretty quickly in hell that they don't like each other. They have these little problems which turn into bigger problems. And so you can live anywhere you want. Well, I'm going to move away from this person. People live hundreds and thousands and millions of miles away from each other because they can't stand each other. And these two individuals get this idea one day, hey, let's go visit Napoleon. Where does Napoleon live? So they set out on the journey to go find Napoleon. It takes them only 15,000 years to get there. Finally, they find Napoleon's house. It's this big, beautiful, gorgeous house that Napoleon has built. And they peer in, into the window to see if they can see Napoleon. And sure enough, there is Napoleon. He is walking back and forth and back and forth, and back, and forth, muttering to himself, and he's saying it was Salt's fault. It was Ney's fault. It was Josephine's fault. It was the fault of the Russians. It was the fault of the English. And the two people stood at the window and watched him do this for an entire year. Now, I don't know if that has anything to do with hell or not, but I have an idea that you're kind of going to be able to do what you want, and what you want is not really what you need. And if you really, really want to blame people, you can do that forever. But you can't stop doing this. So Moses and Aaron get blamed. So how does Moses respond to this? Final two verses, verses of our chapter. Verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? 
why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. So <laughs> Moses takes all of what he's experienced and he brings it to the Lord and he questions the Lord. He asks him two why questions. Why have you brought evil to this people? It's Pharaoh who's done it, but he sees the Lord is behind it all somehow. And why did you ever send me? Why did you ever send me? Now, he, when he came back, he knew it was gonna be difficult. The Lord told him it's gonna be hard. Pharaoh is gonna be resistant, but also I'm gonna show you my wonders and Pharaoh's gonna let you go. And he must be wondering at this point, well, yeah, it's kind of hard, but where are your wonders, Lord? Where are your wonders? We're still stuck here. Things are getting worse. The people are angry with me. And he says this, ever since I have spoken in your name, you have not even delivered these people a, a little bit. I'm not seeing any signs of deliverance. And think about this. What is Moses' biggest problem? Well, if you're familiar with the story, you know that when he was in the wilderness and the Lord met him, he was resistant to going back to Egypt. And at the end, he says, you know what? I really don't have what this takes, Lord, because why? I can't speak very well. The one thing that is necessary for this thing that you are calling me to is that I be able to speak well. I have to be able to speak to the people to get them to believe me. I have to speak to Pharaoh to get him to believe me. And I can't speak well. And now what does he say? Ever since I have spoken in your name, nothing has happened. I'm speak, see Lord, I'm speaking. I don't have good speaking ability. Nothing is happening. I knew it. <laughs> You feel that way. Oh, God's called me to something. I don't have what it takes. It's actually not a bad place to be. Who made man's mouth? You know, back, back in the wilderness, when he was talking to the Lord and the Lord was talking to him, he said, you know, even since we've been talking, I've been noticing I'm not getting any better at this speaking thing. <laughs> You know, couldn't you just make me my mouth better right now in this encounter and then I'm going to go and I'm going to blow them away with my words? No, the Lord didn't do that. And sure enough, he goes back. He speaks. Nothing happens. So I, there were, you know, there was a time or two in my life when I, I left journalism for pastoral training and ministry and I said something along the lines of, why did you ever send me? And I said, uh, you know, did I ever, did I even hear you right in the first place? And you've probably felt that way. <laughs> did, did, I, did I get, how did I end up here? Did I get that right? Was, I thought I was following the Lord, but I'm, in, I'm here and it's not, it's not going well. I wonder if Moses ever wondered. You know, that, that burning bush experience, uh, did, I, did I hear God right there? You know, I only heard it once. I didn't, I, didn't have, I didn't have it on tape. You know, did, did I hear that right? Or was that all a dream? I mean, it's not every day you get a burning bush and the Lord speaks out of a burning bush. Was it all a dream? Did I get that right? But here's what Moses doesn't do. He doesn't run. 40 years ago, when he struck down the Egyptian... 
He thought, according to the book of Acts, that God was bringing about deliverance right then and there. He faltered, he failed, and he ran 40 years in the wilderness. The Lord finally meets him in the wilderness 40 years later, says, I want you to go back, deliver my people. And what does he do? He asks, he asks to be excused. Now, he doesn't run. He doesn't ask to be excused. Instead, he stays present with the Lord. He asks these hard questions. He can do that, but he stays present with the Lord. Whatever you're going through, stay present with the Lord. Ask him your hard questions. Go ahead. That's part of staying present with the Lord. Don't run. Don't ask to be excused. Instead, stay present with the Lord. And if you're inclined to blame others for your problems, do that maybe for a little bit, but then give that up and turn to the Lord. Stay present with him. Christian Wyman, the poet, whose thoughts concerning God were virtually incinerated, also writes this. I have come back for now even hungrier for God, for Christ, for all the difficult bliss of this life I have been given. What an expression. I've come back hungrier forever, hungrier than ever for God, for Christ, and for the difficult bliss of this life. Do you know that's what it is? It's difficult, yes. But if Jesus is in the middle of it, and he is for those of you who believe in him, there's bliss in there. It's difficult bliss. Are you hungry for that? It's possible. Whatever you're going through, stay present with the Lord. Wyman also writes this, but there is great weariness too, and fear, and fury. It is possible to have all of that weariness, fear, fury, and still stay present with the Lord. Exodus 5, Absorb the word and stay present with the Lord. And absorbing the word will help you to stay present with the Lord. And ask your questions. Moses asked these two why questions. Now in the very next verse, Exodus chapter 6, 1, the Lord responds to Moses, but he doesn't answer Moses' questions. Instead, he answers Moses in a way that renders Moses' questions irrelevant. So the answers to your questions, if answers there be, will come in time. So what does the Lord say to Moses that renders Moses' questions irrelevant? Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. Read it for yourself and come back next week. The band may come up and join us up here and lead us in worship again. And as they do, I'm going to pray for us. Heavenly Father, it's great to be uh, with your people again. I've been with your people throughout as going to different churches, but this is the place where near as I can tell, <laughs> you have called me. And uh, so here I am feeling in many ways weak and in inadequate and trusting in your power. Uh, 
Thanks for all these people here. Lord, I believe that you have led them here this day to be part of us today. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them to absorb the word and to stay present with you. We believe, Lord, that even when we don't see it, you're working. We believe. And insofar as we don't believe, help us as we sing this song. In Jesus' name, amen. And as we respond to that word in song, as we declare that we serve the way maker, the promise keeper, 